0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com bringing old time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts Oh let the ancient words impart And I want to emphasize something that really in a sense has already been introduced. Brother Neil Bryan said something about our work program and the urgency of all of us being workers and all of us as soldiers of Christ rising and putting our armor on and working and serving and fighting for our Lord. I want to emphasize today a very simple but basic concept, and if you should ask for a subject, I'd simply say, every member at work. The idea expressed in Ephesians 6 and 14, or chapter 4 of Ephesians, rather, verse 16, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Over two decades ago... A speaker at the ACC lectureship said one of the greatest lessons that we need to learn in the church is that God wants every member to work, to serve, to be active, and that's one of the great lessons that we're continuing to need, and so today I want to talk to you about the principle of every member activity and service, the principle or the what of it. I want to talk about the power, the motivation, the why of it. And I want to talk finally about the practice or the how of it. And I'd like to begin by calling your attention a great passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. You might want to turn to that passage and if you do, you'll notice that it comes right after the statement of Paul, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right after saying we're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith, Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, afore prepared, that we should walk in them. God before ordained, he afore prepared. And as you know, in Ephesians, you have the idea of God's eternal purpose. God forming a plan before the world began. A great timeless, ageless purpose. A great spiritual blueprint. And we're his workmanship. God has brought this to fruition in Christ. And we, the saved ones, the church, the body of our Lord, we are the result. But why are we thus saved? Well, we're saved to serve. We're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works. Underline that. Underscore that. Remember, it comes right after the statement, we're saved by grace through faith. Our works are obviously not meritorious works. We're not, as one fellow put it, building up brownie points. We're not earning our way. We're not meriting anything. Why then do we serve? Well, one of the great purposes of God's eternal purpose is that God might be glorified under the praise of the glory of His grace, Ephesians 1 and 6. To the end that we should be under the praise of His glory, Ephesians 1 12. Under the redemption of God's own possession, under the praise of His glory, Ephesians 1 and 14. And God is not glorified by an apathetic, lethargic, inactive, passive people. God, rather, is glorified by a people who serve not out of a sense of personal merit or attainment, but out of a sense of gratitude and unto the glory of God. We work and we serve that human misery might be met and that suffering men might be served and that lost people might be reached with the gospel. We serve that we might be strengthened and matured in Christ. Let's imagine, and hopefully this may take place this very day, we pray that it will, that one is baptized into Christ. He's immersed in the liquid grave of baptism, baptized into his death, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And he's resurrected from that liquid grave, and he stands now in the swaddling clothes of primary obedience. He's altogether justified. He is altogether forgiven. He's altogether cleansed. But is he mature? Is he full grown? Is he fully developed? The answer has to be no. One of the important results of our service is not merit in relation to guilt or forgiveness, but the maturing effect that it has upon us. You know, I've been in some churches recently, both the one in Detroit and the one in St. Catharines, Ontario, where they're involved in bus ministry, and I believe this has great possibility for good. One of the greatest goods to come from it is what it does for those who work in that ministry those who are the drivers, the bus captains, those who go out into the neighborhoods to get the young people. Not only are these young people benefited, but the workers are greatly benefited. Paul writes in Philippians 4, not that I desire a gift, Philippians 4 verse 17, but the fruit that increaseth or aboundeth to your account. You see, it's not, my friend, that the all-powerful one is so much in need of my service or yours. But he is concerned about the fruit that abounds to our account. And so we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You remember Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 through verse 14? The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purifying to himself a peculiar people, a people for his own possession. Now watch this. Zealous of good works. He died, Titus 2, 13 and 14, to redeem us and to purify unto himself a people for his own possession, a peculiar people, zealous of good works, Where is his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and that's an activity that is to be shared by all and experienced by all. Now go with me to Ephesians 6, 14, and I guess this would really be the text if we had to have a single text for the great principle today. In the previous verse, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, but speaking truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying we derive the power, the directives from the head, We grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. There's cohesion and coordination and unity. But it's not the passive unity of inactivity because he goes on to talk about the effectual working in the measure of every part. That's another way to say every member at work. In Nehemiah 4, verse 6, we find the secret to something that was very remarkable. Against great odds and great opposition in the days of Nehemiah they built they rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem they rebuilt that wall and we read in the text already mentioned Nehemiah 4:6 the people had a mind to work they worked from the rising of the morning until the stars appeared according to chapter 4 of Nehemiah verse 21 That's always been a characteristic of God's people. Unto his glory, unto the maturing of saints, unto the meeting of human need, not meritorious, but altogether vital as an indispensable part of saving active faith. And so the concept in Scripture, the principle, the plan, a part of God's eternal purpose, is a people purchased by the blood, zealous of good works, a part of God's plan from before the foundation was that His workmanship would be prepared under good works, afore prepared unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And it's not simply activity on the part of a few, not simply activity on the part of a minority within the body, but it's the effectual working in the measure of every part. Now let's think about power for a moment. We see the what of it, and everybody does lip service to the concept. Everybody here would say that ideally, ideally, what God really wants is for every member of a congregation to be vitally involved in the work of the Lord, to be active. I remember hearing my dad talk about the fellow who was baptized, and then he promptly sat down on the stool of do-nothing and began to whittle on the stick of do-less and say, I'm glory-bound. Old Brother Soft Soper baptized me at Piney Slab and I've got it made. You know, we've laid a lot of stress on worship, on right worship and scriptural worship, and that's all well and good. We've laid a lot of stress upon correct teaching and doctrine, and that's well and good and needed. But we've left the impression with some people that the church is a worshiping society. And as long as we're correct in our convictions and right in doctrine and dogma, and as long as we keep on regularly with worship, that's all there is to it. But that's not the picture in the New Testament. It goes beyond that. We're his workmanship. created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2.10. And it's according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. Well, everybody sees the theory. The theory's fine. Now, what about the motivation that brings this to reality? What about the power Well, let me say that our activity really ought to be rooted in a relationship. It's not just the dull, drab, dreary, drudgery of serving out of a sense of duty or obligation or just because the committee chairman gave me a card or presented me with a specific assignment. But the activity and the service is rooted in a relationship. John Wooden, the highly successful basketball coach of UCLA, stresses, for the benefit of his teams, there is a difference between activity and achievement. There is a kind of activity that may be virtually fruitless because it is wrongly based and motivated. What is it that moves us to serve as this people for his own possession, zealous of good works? Well, it grows out of and is rooted in a relationship. Go with me to John 15, verse 1 down through verse 8. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Then he goes ahead to paint the picture. It's not a picture of various religious groups being in Christ, the vine, as branches. But individuals, individual Christians, you, me, in Christ. We are then the branches. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You Christians are the branches. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he purgeth it that it may bear more fruit. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And I inject this here and I'll develop it more in a moment. For my own spiritual self-preservation, I need to be serving. I need to keep on working in the kingdom. You ever tried to ride a bicycle but stand still? You're going to have to put your feet down and get them off the pedals because it just won't stand still. Now, you can maintain balance as long as you're moving forward. The turtle makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. And a lot of people, you know, have settled down into the cocoon of an altogether passive religion But Jesus says here that that's the branch that's hewn down, cast into the fire. Herein is my Father glorified. Remember, that's the purpose of the purpose, that God might be glorified. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. It's the fruit-bearing branch that glorifies the Father, that fulfills the purpose. What's back of all this? Well, except... The branch abide in the vine, it cannot bear fruit. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. Without me you can do nothing. Verse 5, John 15. There it is. It's through Christ and in Christ and in His strength that we serve. It's because of the vital relationship with Him. This linkage with the Christ as the vine. And so the fruit-bearing branch does exactly that. It bears fruit because it's related to Jesus Christ. Another figure descriptive of this active, vigorous, moving body, which is the church of our Lord. Romans chapter 12, 4 and 5. As we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. The picture is painted very fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 through 27 or 28. And in this figure we see that Christ is the head, the church is the body, and every individual Christian is a member in the body. All right, let's suppose that some joyful parents finally hold in their arms a little infant. He's perfect and normal physically. Does mama and daddy then begin to talk about Which of these members should be exercised and which should be strapped in a sling and not used at all? No, they don't talk like that. Because they know the strength, the health, the continued normal functioning of that body depends upon the exercise of every member and every part of the body. But notice, in this activity there is the relationship to the head. In this activity, on the part of fruit-bearing branches, there is the relationship to the vine. In the body, there is the relationship to the head. Why do we serve? Because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. One young man was very much impressed by an artist's conception of the Christ, and all of that kind of thing is altogether conjectural because we really don't know. But this young man was impressed with more than that. He was impressed with the portrait that we have of him in terms of his real nature here, and one day looking at that painting, he said, Jesus, you can count on me. The attitude is the attitude that ought to be back of our activity. Not just my relationship to the body, though that's important, but my relationship to the head, to the vine, to, to use another figure about which we've sung, the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10. As we fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6 and 12, because of the relationship to him, we say, Jesus, you can count on me. Not just the elders or the teachers or others, but you can count on me and I'm vitally related to the head or to the vine or to the captain of, the sal- of our salvation. And thus I serve out of that relationship. I serve and I work out of response to God's grace. First Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Here's the one who preached Christ in the virgin and previously untouched fields. Here's the one who, according to Romans 15 and 20, didn't want to build upon another man's foundation. Here's the one who in that same chapter was longing to get not only to Rome but on to Spain. Here's the one who endured all those hardships enumerated in 2 Corinthians 11 five times beaten of the Jews with 40 stripes, save one thrice, beaten with rods, etc. What's back of all this? A dreary sense of duty and that alone? No, much more. Something much stronger. God has given me what I could never earn and what I could never deserve. He has freed me. The price has been paid. The penalty has been lifted. The guilt is now gone. And I've given him my heart and I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Why serve? Why work? Because of a recompense and retribution principle. One facet of which might be expressed like this. Serve, give, love, live for him, and God will shower upon your heads his bounty. But fail to use what he's given, and the little that you may have will be taken away. Take from him that hath not, and give to him that hath, and he'll have in abundance. We have in Matthew 25 in the story of the talents. Somebody says, that seems unjust to me. No, it's not. It's that old law of disuse. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Some people have lost their ardor and their love and their enthusiasm. Some who have had a capacity to reach and teach others have largely lost that. Some Bible class teachers have lost much of that capacity. Some song leaders have lost some of that capacity. On and on we might go. Why? Well, if you use what you've got, God will give you more. That's true of individuals. That's true of congregations. And if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Not long ago in the Abilene paper, There was a little short story about Shirley Turner. Have you read about her? She's a farmer, 247-pounder, and she's lost over 90 pounds, I think 94 pounds at the time the article was written. Still hadn't gotten down to the 133 that she was aiming for by this month, the month of June. In November, her jaws were fastened together. And for... A matter of months, she had only a liquid uh, diet, 600 calories a day. But finally, in order to clean the metal plates that had been placed in her mouth, keeping her jaws together, they were removed. And this is the point I want you to—I want to make, and I want you to get. She could not move her jaws. She could not eat. She could not swallow. She said, doctors believe it will be two months before I can eat normally and I may lose some of my teeth. Now what happened? Well, for days and weeks and months, she didn't use this eating apparatus that God gave us. Didn't use her jaws. And now then, she could not use them and will not be able to do it normally for at least two months. And some of the teeth ordinarily used had not been used. She said, I may lose those. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. But the more you use, the more God gives, the more opportunity, the more capacity comes to you. Work and serve and be active. Why? Because the ultimate reward is assured. You know, there are lots of causes that clamor for our attention for the contribution of our time, our talent, our means, our might. But with a lot of these things, it would be like pouring money down the proverbial rat hole. Because when it's all said and done, the cause doesn't really amount to much. But that's not true with regard to our service in the kingdom. Paul, near the close of 1 Corinthians 15, writes, I show you a great mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this mortal must put on immortality, this corruptible must put on incorruption. So then when this mortal shall have put on immortality, and this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now get this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's in vain in a lot of other things, but 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The principle is, every member working. We're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works. Not works of human merit, but works that God might be glorified, that we might be matured in Christ, that the gospel might be taken throughout the world, that the needs of human misery spiritually and otherwise might be met. And the principle includes the effectual working and the measure of every part. The Lord doesn't want any member of his body in a sling, in a cast, immobilized, inactive. Doesn't want the jaws, so to speak, clamped together might not be so bad sometimes for some of us, but he doesn't want us to be inactive. He wants every member working. The great motive here is a relationship. It's not you can count on me, committee chairman. You can count on me, Deacon Doolittle or whoever. You can count on me, brother, elder, whoever. But you can count on me, Lord, because you see you're the vine and I'm one of the branches. You're the head and I'm one of the members in the body. You're the captain of our salvation, and I'm one of the soldiers in the army. You're the master who calls us into the vineyard to work. Matthew chapter 20, and I'm one of the workers. I'm a part then of this body, of this plant, of this spiritual building. I'm a living stone, and I'm going to be active in my role, out of my relationship to Christ, in my response to God's grace, because of the great principle that to him that hath it shall be given and he'll have an abundance, but from him shall be that hath not shall be taken away even that that he hath. Because if you don't use it, you'll lose it. I'm going to use it. And because I know my labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now let me talk a little bit about practice. And let me say something about program but more than program. We have a great work program plan. The work has been planned and I'm praying that we'll work the plan that we'll put it into practice. And let me say this, there is a place for programs. For one thing, it ensures coverage. If you don't have a program for visitation, you won't visit all those who visit the services. If congregations do not have that in a city, the newcomers to the community will not be visited. A program ensures coverage. It ensures coverage in terms of the workers. And that's a good thing. I can remember many years ago, back there in 1900, none of your business, that I was going to what was then 14th and Vine. I wasn't just real eager, I'm a little bit ashamed to say, to read Scripture, to lead the dismissal prayer, to do things like that, but I did some of it, you know why? A fellow by the name of Johnny Ramsey would come around and say, here's your place on the program, do this. Now, of course, the work of the church should not be confused with worship, but I'm using this to illustrate. There's a place for a program to make sure that we cover need, to make sure that we cover the potential workers, to make sure that we get everyone involved. Some of us wouldn't get started unless there was a plan or a program which singled us out and said, this is what you're to do. And that's one of the beginning steps to becoming a self-starter. And maturing to the point that we're motivated from within to keep on working. So there's a place for programs. And I hope all of us, every single one of us, will give ourselves to this great work program that's been planned and become active. We've got a lot of great workers, some deacons, some new deacons who are working hard, a lot of others who are working hard. This is as it ought to be, and there's a place for a program. But brother, let me tell you something. There's a place to go beyond the program. Back in the Second World War, the Allied forces were making a big push toward Germany. Infantry, artillery, tanks, and the tank drivers were given maps to show the section that they were to cover and in which they were to operate during a particular period of time. And one day after the fighting had been hot and heavy, one of these iron monsters, as the tanks were sometimes called, stopped at about five in the afternoon. And an officer ran up and in vigorous language began to interrogate the driver and ask him why he'd stopped. And he said, I came to the end of my map. Now, there's a place for a program. But there is also a place to say, I've come to the end of the map. I've used up all my cards. Here's an opportunity for me to do something. I'm not going to call the chairman of the visitation committee or the chairman of the benevolent committee. I'm going to do something. And I'm going to go beyond the map. We need the spirit of Sir Cecil Rhodes who unfurled a map of Africa and said all this for the crown, referring to England. And we need to see the whole world needing the Christ. And we need to resolve that we'll have a part in the taking of the gospel to every creature. Don't forget the purpose. In the midst of the programs, don't forget that we're seeking to reach the lost and teach the lost and save souls There's a story told of a group of tourists going through Westminster Abbey. And in their midst was an older lady, not quite as wealthy as some of these travelers, but she was just having the time of her life. And she was just hanging upon every word spoken by the tour guide as he lectured about Westminster Abbey. And he would tell about where royalty would sit when they would come into this cathedral-like structure. The king sat there. And finally, almost with a tone of arrogance, He came to the pulpit and said, this is the most famous pulpit in all the world. And with that, he said, the tour is ended. The lecture is closed. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them. And the old lady spoke up and said, has anybody been saved here lately? And he said, will you repeat the question? She said, has anybody been saved here lately? He said, ma'am, I'm sorry. That question has never been asked before. And I'm sorry to say, I really don't know the answer. Well, let me tell you something. That was a good question. And that's a good question for us. We need to have a program. We need to have some goals. We need to have some plans. But let's never forget that the program should not be turned primarily inward as we serve ourselves. And we need to see beyond building and ground, though they ought to be well kept. We need to see beyond procedure and paraphernalia. And see to the ultimate end the saving of souls. And don't despise the seemingly little thing. The cup of cold water. The track that you may hand out. Our pockets and our purses probably ought to be filled with them. Recently on a flight from Dallas to Detroit, we got into a little bit of turbulence. Now I don't know about you, but I know about me, I don't like that. Just a little bit of that goes a real long way with me. And the fellow, there was a vacant seat between us, And there was a guy over here by the aisle, and we began to talk. And I found out that he was connected with what he called Cana, C-A-N-A. And though there was a kind of twofold meaning, that stood for converted alcoholic and narcotic addicts. And he said, that's the category I'm in. Twenty years ago, my life almost ended in Denton, Texas, from an overdose. And I began to talk to him. And fortunately, I had a track by uh, Brother Joe Barnett that I gave him. And we talked as long as we could on that trip. And by the way, that's a pretty good way to handle the turbulence because I began to forget about it. I had my testament there. But I've got to frankly confess, that's a hard thing for me to start. That's a hard thing for me to initiate. But I ought to be doing it, you ought to be doing it, and we ought to come equipped to do it. And let's not despise the day of small things or the seemingly little opportunities. Back in 1909, John McCutcheon drew a very striking cartoon. Two frontiersmen were talking. And this was on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln that he drew the cartoon. And one of them was saying, has anything important happened around here? The other fellow says, no, nothing important. There was a baby born last night over at the Lincoln cabin, but nothing important ever happens around here. But these youngsters that are entering this world, right here in Abilene, Texas, some of them in the virtual shadow of our buildings, constitute very, very important happenings. And the chance conversation, the track passed on, the hospitality extended, constitute important happenings. And don't depreciate and don't despise the little opportunities or the little things that we can do but resolve in your own world, in your own sphere of influence, as a part of a group and as a part of a program, but beyond the program, and seizing individually opportunities that are yours, that you'll serve, because we're his workmanship creating Christ Jesus on the good works. And he's looking for the effectual working in the measure of every part. You can't win by waiting. That's a slogan that realtors sometimes use. Up in Denver, elsewhere you'll see it. On billboards, on lapel pins, you can't win by waiting. But brother, that's true with regard to the saving of souls. I saw a man one time, one morning. And then I left that particular city for a while. By the time I came back, that man's life had terminated and I never thought that brief conversation in the kitchen of a friend one morning would be the last time I'd have the chance to talk to him. You can't win by waiting. So I want to make this recommendation a very simple one. Just resolve that you'll find, if you haven't really fully found, the niche that fits you best in the kingdom. And it'll be a growing niche if you work like you should, because unto him that hath shall be given, and he shall have in abundance. And don't wait for somebody to give you a card. Cards are fine. But we need to be active out of a relationship with the vine as we're branches, out of a relationship to the head as we're members of the body, out of devotion and loyalty to the captain of our salvation as we're soldiers in the army. And so we work and so we serve, moved and motivated by grace, and out of the realization that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and as we recognize that unto him that hath it shall be given. In Atlanta, Georgia, there is a vast, huge mural I've read, and it's almost inconceivable, on an 18-ton Kansas, picturing the Battle of Atlanta. And in that battle, and in a sense this is depicted in the picture, a Union soldier heard a Confederate soldier crying for water. And despite the heat of the fray, fought near what was known as Hurt House in Atlanta, he rushed to that Confederate soldier and met his need, and as he lifted the sagging head, he saw that this was his brother. The, name, the names of both, Martin, and this is a story which historically can be documented, and it has been, in a sense, preserved for posterity in this great painting. I suggest, my friend, that when we rush to that one who is crying out in his loneliness and lostness. That one who is longing for a personal touch, who wants to be more than a number on an IBM card or a digit in a decimal system. Who wants to know that somebody cares. That one who is kind of like the young man who said, what I need is not just a Father in heaven, but a friend on earth. Now, we need a Father in heaven. And we need a Savior, but some people will never know the Father in heaven and will never know the Savior unless they have a friend on earth. And in a sense, he's my brother. He may be the brother in Christ who's been overtaken in a fault, Galatians 6.1, and I have a responsibility to him. He may be a brother in Adam, though not a brother in Christ, desperately needing to come to Christ, and I need to hear that cry and rush to his aid, and not wait for some kind of mach- machinery or organization to get in motion, but according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, unto God's glory... In order to the fruit that abounds to my account, to my own spiritual maturity, and that the great human need might be met. I rush to that one who cries for the water of life, and I seek to render aid. We're going to sing, Will You Not Tell It today? Maybe an unusual song for an invitation, but we need to be telling it. The Saviour is appealing to us to come to Him and then have Him come to go and tell. We come by believing in him, by turning from our sin, by confessing his name, by being baptized into his death. And thus in this liquid grave the penitent believer is cleansed by his blood and he goes forth a new creature. He goes forth, my friend, to serve because he's saved to serve. He's been called to call others. He's been saved to save others. He's been brought to the Lord that he might bring others. And that's the great appeal. And I hope that those of us who may not in any visible way react or respond may within our hearts respond and resolve we're going to be a part not only of this great work program but we'll go above and beyond that and we'll be watching for every opportunity that God brings in his providence to share Christ to meet the need and the empty vacuum and the aching void in the human heart with the gospel of Christ and with the love of the Lord as shown in our own hearts and lives and we'll tell it we'll do it today if you're responsive to his invitation. We pray that you'll come right now while we stand and sing.